So it is my very proud pleasure to be able to introduce uh, Lord Brown, our speaker this afternoon, uh, for the uh, Memorial Lecture, the Morris Lovett Memorial Lecture. Lord Brown, as I already mentioned, is from another university originally. Um, he has the great distinction of being a, a, a knight, a peer, a fellow of the Royal Society and a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, which is a very rare set of distinctions. He is, of course, also a very well-known businessman. He worked for BP for a long time, rising to be chief executive of that organisation, and took BP from a... Um, well, I'm not quite sure how to describe it, the chief executive or ex-chief executive in front of me, but from a slightly struggling organisation to being a really world-class power. And I think those of us who have pension funds invested in BP are extremely grateful for the shareholders <laughs> that he created when he was there. Of course, he's done a lot of other things. He's on the board of many companies, and he's now managing director, managing partner of Riverstone Holdings, limited liability company, which I think invests a lot of other people's money in things or something like that. <laughs> anyway, Lord Brown is also the president of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and this being our centenary year as the Department of Engineering and Science, we thought it very appropriate to have the president of the Royal Academy of Engineering to come and talk to us about being an engineer. Lord Brown. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a, it is a very great pleasure to be here at, at Oxford. It's a very rare uh, thing for me to be here. Uh, but uh, I always realise that there's at least two places in England where you can have a, a quite good education. <laughs> uh, I'm also very honoured uh, to have been invited here as President of the Royal Academy of Engineering to deliver the Lubbock Lecture. And it is, of course, a particular honour uh, to be able to celebrate with you the centenary of the founding of engineering science at Oxford. Now, I'm also delighted to be giving this lecture in the presence of Eric Lubbock, Lord Avebury. Lord Avebury is one of the small class of people, an engineer who went on to become a celebrated politician here in Britain and on the world stage. In this country, too few engineers get involved in public life. And so this afternoon, I want to demonstrate that engineering is at the centre of society, that engineers have a unique set of skills and perspectives uh, which should be used to create a better future for all of us. And I'd like to talk about a major engineering project that I was involved with, and I'll talk about the challenges facing young engineers now and the skills they need to meet them. And I'm going to do that all in about 20 minutes. Uh, to give plenty of time for a debate uh, afterwards. And for those of you who aren't listening, if you read the FT this morning, uh, most of this has been covered in the FT already. So I'm sorry about that, but we'll go through it. We'll talk about it together. Now, a hundred years ago, this university's Department of Engineering and Science was established. And coincidentally, it was also a hundred years ago that the Model T Ford went into mass production. And this marked the beginning of a transportation revolution when the automobile became available in large numbers and at low cost. It was a revolution that changed the world. The work and home lives of billions of people 
have been shaped by access to affordable personal transport. The layout of towns and cities has been determined by cars and roads. The motor industry now plays a huge part in the economies of both developed and importantly developing nations. And of course, the automobile has been central to the growth of the oil industry in which I've spent most of my career. Engineers don't just build better cars or houses or more mobile phone networks. Engineers actually change the way we travel, the way we live, how we communicate with one another. Engineers have the big ideas, but they also plan and manage the processes to make the ideas reality. So what should an engineer know and be able to do in order to be effective? The bedrock of engineering will always be the application of mathematical and physical theory to create wealth and to improve our quality of life. But engineering is far more than just applied science. The essence of engineering is in its practice. The particular skills of engineers are developed by solving real-world problems rather than becoming conversant in physical theory. The complex nature of engineering challenges means that engineers need to engage with communities, with politics, with economic realities, and with environmental considerations. In the words of my colleague, Lord Darcy, engineering is about the technological solutions to human problems. The bigger the engineering challenge, the greater the need for judgment and, importantly, empathy. In order to demonstrate these points, I'm going to describe a major engineering project from my own experience when I was running BP, as chief executive of BP. And this is the story of a pipeline, a pipeline built between Baku, Tbilisi, and Jehan. The BTC pipeline, as it's called, was indeed an enormous undertaking from a technical perspective. But the success of this project was predicated on the ability of the engineers to manage a host of social, economic, political, and environmental issues. The oil reserves of the Caspian Sea have been known about for a long time. And by 1900, I think this photograph was a little later than that, there were more than 3,000 oil wells in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. And this slide shows what the, oil, what the area used to look like and indeed did look like until it was cleaned up reasonably recently. The Caspian is an inland sea. For this reason, transporting the crude oil from there to world markets has been a long-standing challenge. The BTC project met that challenge by building a pipeline of more than 1,000 miles in length. The pipeline runs from a modern offshore platform in the Caspian Sea, so you can see it here, through Azerbaijan and Georgia, re reaching a terminal on the Mediterranean coast of Turkey. The oil completes its journey end-to-end -end in just 10 days flowing at a rate of 1 million barrels a day. The first oil reached its destination in May 2006. The technical challenges in designing and building the pipeline were immense, 
not least because of the sheer scale of the project. The BTC pipeline is the second longest oil pipeline in the entire world, and it cost just around about $4 billion to build. The pipeline climbs steep gradients, up to 3,000 meters in places. It crosses 1,500 rivers and roads. It's buried along its entire route. The construction was further complicated in that it was only possible to work during certain months of the year because of bad weather. Of course, the all-important consideration in the construction of a pipeline is the route. Looking at gradient, waterways, roads, and other communications networks is a routine task for an engineer constructing a pipeline of this size. But if these factors alone were taken into consideration, the pipeline would have taken a very different route to that which it eventually followed. In seeking the best route, BP's engineers also had major political obstacles to contend with. The thick blue line on this slide shows the eventual route that the pipeline took. Azerbaijan is flanked on one side by Armenia. The relationship between these two countries has for several decades been hostile, dating back to the Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict which broke out during the final years of the Soviet Union. In the 1990s, when plans were being laid for the pipeline, the situation between the two countries was far from stable. And actually, I experienced this in firsthand in one of my visits, uh, which coincided with Armenia invading Azerbaijan and getting to within 20 miles of the capital of Azerbaijan. It was clear that laying the pipeline between these two countries would entail too much political risk. It simply actually couldn't be done. Azerbaijan's other neighbor on the shores of the Caspian Sea is no easier. It's Iran. Political relationships between Iran and the United States were, in a British understatement, tense. Uh, and the number of US companies involved in the BTC pipeline ruled out laying the pipe in that direction too. So the route out of Georgia, so the route out of Azerbaijan had to be through Georgia. The Georgian authorities were willing to do business with us, but the then president, Edvard Shevardnadze, placed many restrictions on the project, making it plain that he understood we had no choice and that technical considerations were by no means his main concern. The planning of the pipeline route was thus fraught with political obstacles that had a fundamental impact on the engineering of the line. These political challenges extended far beyond deciding the route. During the construction of the pipeline, each of the countries that it crossed saw at least one change of leadership. So relationships had to be brokered afresh with new governments and agreements cemented over periods of intense political upheaval. Building a line that crosses three countries means dealing with different laws, cultures, and languages. It's interesting that one of the former uh, Secretaries of State for Energy, Jim Schlesinger of the United States, always reminded me that uh, it doesn't just cross 93 countries, but uh, he says 92 ethnic groupings. But transparency dictated that there had to be a parity of treatment across all borders based on a single legal relationship 
that was acceptable to all the governments involved. Legal agreements had to be published in several languages, setting a new standard of disclosure for infrastructure projects. Despite the complexity, the BTC pipeline was the first project to meet the equator principles, which set a benchmark for the financial industry in managing social and environmental issues in project financing. Achieving such standards wasn't simple. There was a balance to be struck between transparency and the requirements of the different laws and standards of each state. These matters required our team of engineering managers to exercise a good deal of diplomacy and sensitivity in their negotiations. High-level negotiating skills were also needed in dealing with the multiple business partners involved. Eleven companies representing eight different countries, six commercial banks, and 13 credit export agencies. Managing the huge and diverse team of staff on the project was also a challenge. The BTC partnership was run by a 500-strong management team located in 17 different project offices. And business risks were by no means the greatest risks to be managed. The very fact that this was an oil pipeline meant that the project involved inherent environmental risks. There was a constant risk of leak or spill that could devastate the natural environment in some visually extremely attractive scenery. It is, of course, of paramount concern to the engineer that environmental risks are kept as low as reasonably possible, and that should accidents happen, the consequences can be controlled. In this case, the risk was heightened by the route that we were forced to take. The pipeline crossed several seismic faults, like the North Anatolian Fault, shown on this slide, very, very visible, presenting the risk of earthquake and consequent rupture of the pipeline and leakage. A number of engineering solutions were put in place to manage these risks. The pipeline was laid in a trapezoidal trench filled with granular material to allow it to move if an earthquake occurred. Contingency was made for the most serious seismic event envisioned over a 10,000-year period. Despite the inherent risks, an overarching aim of the project was to have a positive net environmental impact. A key objective was to reduce the number of tankers carrying oil through the Bosphorus and the narrow Turkish Straits, reducing the risk of pollution on the banks of Istanbul, one of the world's great cultural treasures. Preserving wildlife habitats was another important objective. The fact that the pipeline was buried meant that it was possible, in most cases, to reinstate the land to its original condition. As well as technical, political, and environmental challenges, there were also great social challenges. The BTC project set particularly impressive standards in that area. Some 450 communities and approximately 750,000 people were affected by the construction of the pipeline. But it was our aim that no person would be displaced, and we were successful in meeting the same. No person had to leave their home, as a result of the project. Landowners were able to return to their land and to use it as before, with only minimal disruption. That's no small feat, considering we had to deal with a 1,000 landowners owning 30,000 parcels of land in three different countries. The land had to be procured ethically 
through a fair and transparent system of compensation. And construction couldn't take place without agreements on land, and therefore settling and paying compensation had to be factored into the project schedule. Land procurement was, in fact, the rate-determining step for the entire project. The positive social impacts of the pipeline were considerable. At peak levels, 22,000 people were employed, between 70 and 80% of whom were local people, and all of whom received training and education, as well as wages. <coughs> so technical, political, environmental, and social complexities were an inherent part of the engineering challenge. Of course, no engineer can be expert enough to deal with these issues on her or his own. An essential engineering skill is being able to recognize the limits of one's competencies and to procure expertise where necessary, working with people from different sectors and different cultures. The BTC project drew on a wide range of experts, specialists in biodiversity, who alerted us to threats to wildlife, NGOs and human rights organizations who scrutinized and advised us on environmental and social impacts, and archaeologists who helped us navigate around historical sites around the route, such as the one shown on this site, on this slide. These groups were by no means passive observers. There were inevitably objections and debates and a project of this level of complexity and political sensitivity will never leave everybody happy. But it's a central feature of engineering projects that choices involve trade-offs. Engineers must work in imperfect circumstances with competing demands. All of this demonstrates that engineers must face in many different directions. Engineering isn't just understanding and applying scientific theory. I believe it's time to redefine the package that makes up the term engineering skills. We must all work to ensure that the public, especially young people, understand the dynamic role of the professional engineer in making a difference and shaping the future of society. And engineering students need to be alert to the broader impacts of what they do. We must teach our engineers to understand the workings of the worlds of business, politics, and public policy. We must prepare students for real-world problems in all their complexity. The mind of the engineer is fertile. It's no coincidence that engineers are in such high demand from other sectors of the economy. For engineering, at its best, involves a way of thinking that balances creativity and scientific rigor with the need for practical solutions. I firmly believe that opening minds to wider issues will help engineering departments, like our host here this evening, to continue to attract the very best students. Let me return to Ford's innovation of a century ago. To a great extent, the need for oil results from our reliance on the motor car. However, events might have transpired differently. The BTC pipeline might never have been needed. When the Model T Ford was created, it could have run either on gasoline or ethanol. 
Gasoline was chosen for two principal reasons, which had little to do with engineering. First, prohibition in the United States, which restricted the production of alcohols. And second, the low price of gasoline. The impacts of that choice have been as significant as the advent of the motor car itself. Gasoline is a high-carbon fuel. Burning it releases greenhouse gases, the consequences of which we're only now beginning to appreciate and understand. The choice of gasoline also required the addition of an agent to allow the engine to run smoothly. And that agent was lead, the presence of which has led to significant levels of harmful local pollution and human damage. Gasoline's predominance, which has little to do with pure engineering, has had profound consequences for mankind. It's helped create what I believe is today's greatest engineering challenge, combating climate change. Perhaps we could now be running cars on renewable, low-carbon fuels if things had developed differently. My view is that engineers must be more involved in thinking through the relationship between their work and a broader society. The motor car example shows how political and economic concerns outside engineering have had a profound impact on engineering. The BTC pipeline example shows that engineers can equally have a profound impact on politics and economics. Engineers can't predict the future, but we can use our expertise to have a positive influence on that future. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for the opportunity to address this illustrious gathering this evening. Richard, I again applaud your excellent and forward-thinking work. This department is helping to create tomorrow's engineers, professionals who will revolutionise the way we will live through their ingenuity and their humanity. Thank you very much. one of the key points I made, which was engineering has to have empathy or must have humanity because it is expressed in its practice. And its practice touches people just as much as uh, someone who's studying medical science would do in the clinical practice of that. It touches people and so that's part and parcel uh, of uh, everything that needs to be done. So indeed the energy mix going forward is radically changing have talked about that uh, this evening, radically <coughs> changing, uh, but we can't deny ourselves the use of any source of energy at the moment. 
what we have to do is bundle it up to get a much, much lower carbon content uh, in our energy systems and a much more efficient use of energy. More production per unit of energy has to occur. So uh, nuclear, <coughs> wind, solar, all these things are very important. Carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, explain to people the risks of having buried carbon dioxide. Is that a risk? Is it not a risk? But I think in communication, in understanding, and in adjusting what happens to uh, the reality of people, not just to think of them as an afterthought, uh, will, I think, be a winning way. It's never a good idea, I think, to approach uh, people with a fait accompli, and it certainly isn't a, a, a winning way to say, it's good for you because I'm an expert. Hello, Andrew Blake from Microsoft Research. You're um, advocating that when we teach engineers, we should um, help them to be aware of the broader impact of what they do. Of course, when we teach engineers, we usually do it in the context of a discipline. And I'm wondering if uh, what you think in this case the discipline might be. Is it something that exists already? Is it something that needs to be invented? Or actually, is it something that typically people learn in the field? So I, it depends on your definition of <coughs> discipline. Uh, I, I think that uh, at my own view, and uh, I don't expect this is the most conventional view, uh, is that uh, uh, too fine uh, a, a definition of discipline, that is to say, producing people who, are, who, who really start to specialize far too quickly within sub-branches of engineering is a bad idea. Uh, that uh, the beginning of education should be as broad as possible and only later narrowing. Uh, that may take a little more time to get people uh, up to speed to do research, but I think on the balance of everything that's produced uh, for the world as a whole, it produces uh, people who have potential for more greatness, I would say. Because I think that in the end there's no pursuit like engineering which looks in so many directions at once. I think that is important. It looks, as we've just talked to, to people, it looks to business, it looks to politics, it looks everywhere because it has to express something very real uh, in its application, in its practice. Uh, there are very few things that do that uh, because uh, you know, many people just uh, approach one thing. Economists clearly don't do it, politicians clearly don't do it, uh, social scientists don't do it, but engineers do. And therefore, I think the training has to be very special and quite broad. This is a question which you may wish not to answer. <laughs> but one of the aspects that must concern the operators of the pipeline and people elsewhere in the world is maintaining its security. <coughs> Would you care to comment on that? Absolutely. I, I think that, uh, you know, I don't think that... Uh, you know, you, you, you'd say that uh, going from uh, Azerbaijan through Georgia to Turkey uh, is like having a, is like being in Surrey and Sussex, I don't think. It's not the same. So uh, security was uh, one of the things in, 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 in within the design. One of the reasons, there are many reasons why the pipeline is buried, is for just this point. If buried, uh, a pipeline has to be dug up in order to be cut uh, or, has, or, or, or ruptured in some way. 
it has to be buried, it has to be entombed deep enough so that if you put a bomb on it, uh, you're not going to actually get to the pipeline unless the bomb is enormous or you've spent enough time excavating to get the bomb there. So you also need to have surveillance of the pipeline itself. So there is a large amount of uh, surveillance. There are sense a net of sensors over the whole pipeline itself. Uh, there are television cameras. And more importantly, there are helicopters going up and down with night vision equipment as well as day vision the whole time. And then there are also places where the security forces have uh, outposts they can get to parts of this pipeline. And some of this pipeline is very remote. But the good news is if it's remote, it's remote for everybody. Uh, you have to get there by horseback, which means that it's difficult to get out of the place when you've done something. So it's also quite... So that limits the number of things to be done. I, I don't think... Uh, you know, this piece of... It, it, this is uh, just a piece of important infrastructure. And all important infrastructure today whether they're critical roads or airports or pipelines, refineries, oil terminals, uh, gas, ter gas sites, uh, electric switchgear, you name it, uh, they all have to have uh, upgraded security uh, around them in certain parts of the world. It's a very big field. Which is from the University of Surrey. I found this extremely interesting and appealing to me, and not only because I'm involved in, in teaching um, systems thinking and systems integration, but I'm also related by birth to the, the part of the world you've uh, been uh, giving account of the experiences and the complexities generated uh, by being in that part of the world. What is amazing for me is that you mentioned all the real bottlenecks were to do with integration with systems, environmental, socio-political and economic rather than the true bottlenecks being about technology or the availability of the technology to take things down mountains along crevices against working against earthquakes and so on. And I find that really quite incredible and quite interesting. How would you prepare uh, British, indigenous British students or foreign students in education in this country to eventualities like this? I mean, aren't these ultimately experience-based uh, learning, would, how would we enshrine this level of high-level thinking into the, the courses? Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not a teacher on purpose, so, sure. but I think, uh, you know, having, having been a business school, I would say it's obvious that the case method uh, provides a simulation of experience, provided the student has a degree of maturity, and also has uh, a high degree of uh, capability with the, with the component parts of the subject. But in the end, uh, case, the case method, uh, I think you know, taught in a Socratic way, uh, uh, does actually provide a really good uh, simulation of reality. Has this project been well documented? Uh, in it has, and I'm not... It has. On? There's quite a lot of documentation on this, and I'm sure that uh, there are other, there are other, other thing, other projects, other pieces of work, other ways of thinking that also provide uh, the material for case studies. I'm not sure whether this has been a, a case study for a business school. Thank you. So what you said, really, going back to Andrew Lake's question, is that he would 
define the discipline of engineering as being a much broader uh, item than just the technologies involved, but also including the social impact considerations of the social impact or awareness, the social impact of the results of engineering. Uh, yeah, I, well, I, I mean, in my own experience, I must say, I've always found that, and it's a trite saying nowadays, that the most interesting things uh, in any area are the pieces that link uh, the subcomponents of the study, the, the sub, the, the sub uh, subjects, the subcomponents of the, the big subject, uh, either link them or they're the pieces that occur uh, in the gaps between them. Uh, and so I think that's quite important here. Uh, I think engineering itself, you know, however it's taught, and again, I'm not a teaching expert, uh, it seems to me engineers have to have, you know, these four fundamental skills, uh, well, I think they're well rehearsed in front of people, to conceive something, to design, to implement, and to operate. Uh, and I think in order to get through that four-phase approach, uh, you have to look at more than just uh, what can happen to the, the flow of fluids through pipes. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> at many stages of the project, there must have been alternatives. Now, with alternatives, it's very often, it's not obvious that which one is the best. Would you describe the most difficult decision you have to make? <laughs> yes. Uh, so there, there were... There are plenty of alternatives. Uh, there were uh, first one, which was actually to do nothing, was to say it's all too complicated, leave it there. But in fact, actually, had we not excited Azerbaijan, we might have got away with that. Uh, but the very first uh, uh, alternative was to send the oil to Russia. And if you thought about that for a moment, that as uh, far as I was concerned, this was too many eggs in one basket. This was everybody, one person controlling everything. And so we decided that it had to be diversification. You know, Winston Churchill said the most important thing about energy security, he said, security lies in diversification. That's what Winston Churchill said. Actually, the day after he said that, he bought half of BP. <laughs> so so, so you, it always taught me you have to listen to what people say really carefully, and then you can understand what, what's going to happen. Uh, so uh, you need to, so I think diversification. And that one decision created a tremendous set of problems. I mean, there was an awful lot of action being taken by various factions, uh, Russian factions, to destabilize uh, the project, which was the BTC pipeline, which is a real destabilization uh, action took place from time to time, not least putting a lot of pressure on Shevardnadze in Georgia. And as you know, when, before Shevardnadze left, he was a very embattled person. I mean, there, must, there was, I think, 1% of the population who supported him. I remember going to see him. I've never seen someone uh, in so, the last time I saw him, in so much security. He was in a tiny room, in a room which was secure, in another room which was secure, in a building which was secure, in a compound which was secure, in part of the town which was shut off. I mean, it was that, it was sort of like a Chinese puzzle, which was a huge, and, and, and also looking worse for wear. But he uh, was uh, being pushed very hard. The Russians also had, one of the reasons we had to route the pipeline in a certain way, for example, 
was because there were listening stations that we couldn't go past. And we weren't told that, but it was obvious. And so we had to sort of go round in a very strange way to keep out of the way of any conceivable military operation. So that was one uh, alternative. The other, which one of our venture partners wanted to do, was to take it through Iran. Uh, and uh, we thought that was pretty tricky because the, the oil would actually not physically go through Iran, it would go into the top of Iran, and then commercially, you'd get the oil back at the bottom of Iran, in the south. So it relies on an awful lot of uh, contracts that need to be enforced, uh, and enforced over a long period of time. Very difficult indeed. Uh, and then, uh, I think those were the two principal things. I mean, uh, Armenia uh, really didn't look feasible because of the problem, the age-old problem, of the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh. And until that's solved, uh, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan will be at technical war. Your description of the role of the engineer in grappling with all these problems is riveting. I find myself asking, to what extent were the foreign office available and ready to help, and how far was their influence on the project, uh, which in fact influenced the engineers on their ultimate decisions? Everyone played a part. Uh, and I mean, in something like this, you have to say that uh, there were huge numbers of people, everyone from the then President of the United States, President Clinton, who we asked to do, so when he was visiting, actually get the heads of government that were, this was the second set of heads of government we were talk, dealing with, to sign a document, through to the Foreign Office who were providing us with information, uh, representation. For example, there was no representation. Uh, in Azerbaijan when we started and I uh, went to see uh, a very nice man who was running the foreign office called uh, 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 John uh, that will come back to me in a moment uh, uh, it was before John Kerr it was uh, uh, just before John Kerr sorry I've suddenly forgot Coles, John Coles, the John Coles and I said we needed an ambassador and uh, he said well we haven't got a building so I said, well, uh, why don't you put him in the BP office and we'll, we'll have a sealed door. <laughs> and that's exactly what we did, put him in the BP office. So we had a, it's a chargé d'affaires. Uh, but uh, the reason why there was U UK representation in Azerbaijan was we, we asked for it and we said we'd do all and everything to get it. Uh, it would be inconceivable not to have a UK ambassador. At the time. I mean, it was run out of Moscow at the time, but then it was an independent nation. So it didn't much like that. First of all, just follow up. Have you read John Cole's essay about the need for ambassadors in all these countries and, and his decrying the way that the diplomatic service now seems to play almost second part to the DFID, to the foreign aid program? No, I haven't well, read it. But I'd probably agree with it. It's probably your ex his experience with you will have coloured that view. Well, I remember it was even more difficult. We, we couldn't actually find anyone in the foreign office itself, so we took someone from another branch of government and got him trained in the foreign office and then sent out. <laughs> so, uh, so. Roger. Um, I imagine this will run for a long time. 
pipeline, and it will be therefore important that the security and political situation that you described as being so important sustains into the future. I'd be interested to know if uh, what kind of analysis BP did to work out whether that was likely or not, if they did one, and also whether um, the company is a passive uh, observer of that situation now, or whether you know, whether there's an interest actively in promoting education programs and so on along the route, things that might you know help the peaceful situation to sustain. So you're you're beginning to answer your own question. So uh, you have to continuously invest in in the relationship you have with the countries, and so part of that's economic. Uh, nothing, money uh, it does help because it. It focuses the mind, you know. It means that if it if it disappears, you you miss it, you know? and that's that's a big incentive. So uh, every country along the route gets a tariff for for just having the pipeline there. Secondly, every country is operating its own piece of the pipeline under an umbrella. Thirdly, there are programs to help the communities around each of the pipelines. The communities basically love it, and, and I think keeping it going in that way, it's very important. Uh, and there is a large amount of continuing employment, security, maintenance, all these sorts of things are uh, quite important. I'd like to break away from the pipeline to a more general point about engineers and interaction with government. I've been educating engineers for, for many years and advising them on careers. And I haven't had one who said to me, I want to be a civil servant. Uh, many students of classics and English who are really keen to become civil servants. And I suspect this is a weakness in our system. And, and it's very difficult to talk to civil servants who are knowledgeable and sympathetic about even elementary sort of technology. Do you think we could do something to improve the the, uh, the prospects of engineers in the civil service and to encourage them to, to enter it and to add their expertise to government service? Um, I, I, this is a difficult question to answer directly, uh, especially from someone like me who is a great proponent of smaller government rather than larger government. Uh, so I, I think that uh, <coughs> roughly the following. First, I, I think that engineers need to be employed where they, they find the most exciting work and where the remuneration and the psychological benefit or the social benefits that come with it balance in the package they like, whether that's teaching or whether it's engineering or whether it is, as has been currently fashionable, uh, to go to the city in quantitative analysis because engineers are arguably the very best for that. They're a loss to engineering, but they're not a loss uh, to the training. So uh, I think uh, they need to go there. I think what we need to do, though, it's, it's much there are, in fact, uh, uh, still activities which uh, are run by the government that require engineers, uh, and if they're exciting things, then they need to be presented as such. But where I think uh, engineers lack is... Uh, the ability to uh, not necessarily just have civil servants, but to get people in higher, the higher parts of government, which can come via secondment or attachment, people who have enormous experience and credibility in engineering, 
uh, that could really make a difference by influencing the people who work for them. And I think there, perhaps more people should uh, apply, more people should be encouraged to get into these uh, jobs. Uh, I've always wondered why uh, you know, there is a, there's a, 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 well, I don't know what now, it used to be called chief scientific advisor. You know, uh, and, and I always had this big discussion with Sir Robin Nicholson, who used to do this for uh, Mrs. Thatcher. I kept saying, you should call yourself uh, the engineering and scientific advisor, uh, because uh, that's what you are. He was actually a metallurgist, he was a fellow of the, this academy, uh, as well as of the Royal Society. Uh, and uh, he actually did advise more on engineering uh, as well as science. And I think it's part of the projection, part of getting people to be clear that that's what they're doing. It will make a lot of difference. Do you think uh, industry does enough to support sort of interchanges or exchange of stuff with government and <coughs> civil service? Does BP put uh, sick on people? Uh, very rarely. BP used to. BP was one of the uh, people who tried the hardest. It, it's very difficult to do. Uh, it, it does happen in handfuls, I would say, uh, and makes a, a, a makes a bit of a difference. But it's uh, only a few. Will. Can, can I ask you, come back to the training issue again. Um, you've been very eloquent on the need for both engineering and the socio-political angle. Um, my background is more in the broadband revolution, perhaps because that's very fast. The car revolution is relatively slow. The business model is the thing people most likely to trip up on. Uh, Microsoft probably agree with this. Um, businesses that don't work out, or businesses that don't work out, usually don't work out because something goes wrong with the business model. The economics doesn't work. That seems to me to be one of the big weaknesses in the engineering generation we currently have, rather than the, the social which we perhaps do at least care about. Do you think that's not fair? No, I, I think it's uh, right, but I, I think uh, rather than having debate and saying it's one or the other, actually it's all of it really, because all of these are integrated approaches. Uh, and much as I think the analysis of how big the pipe works, <coughs> if I use those examples, these are all business matters, uh, th they are all integrated in a package of interaction. You know, you need to attract capital, you need to make a certain rate of return, you've got to be able to understand what you're doing, what is the competitive advantage of what you're doing, you've got to write the right sort of business plan, you've got to execute it properly with great people. So, you know, all of the above is the, the answer. And actually, if you look, you know, my present business, I, I look to investing in, uh, in renewable energy and in conventional energy. Uh, you know very well that what you're really doing is you're picking people in the end. We as investors pick management uh, and leadership. And we look at them and say, just how rounded are they? They understand really what they're doing. They understand the context in which they're working. And are they passionate about delivering something? If you can find all those things, then you've found a success. Um, what are your thoughts on the sustainability of biofuels in the transport sector? Do you think this is going to be the only alternative option in 2030 years' time? No, I think there'll be lots of different options, but I think biofuels will be a very important uh, part of the mix. Right now, biofuels are having a, a tough time uh, in uh, the big debates around the world. 
because biofuels have been blamed for almost everything. I mean, they've been blamed for high food prices, they've been blamed for all sorts of shortages, for, for uh, deforestation, all sorts of things like that. Now, the answer to all these things is some of that is true, but a lot of it isn't. And, you know, I, I went to a, was in a, in a meeting which was, which I thought verged on the ludicrous, which we were talking about food prices, and in particular rice. And the rice has actually gone up faster and further than any other foodstuff over the last year. Uh, and it's gone up by 350%. It's a lot. Now, uh, last time I looked, and I'm on top of this subject, no rice is used for biofuels. Uh, and uh, although the price increase was blamed on biofuels, now, you know, by some strange argumentation. So I think biofuels are very important. We're learning about how to make them properly. You know, the, the, the uh, feedstock has to come from sustainable sources, and there are definitions which are now being, which have been promulgated by the EU, and they're very good ones. Uh, they uh, have to produce something which is different from gasoline. So the gap between the amount of CO2 that's emitted by burning the gasoline and the biofuel has to be big enough to be measurable. You know, it can't just be a few percent. It needs to be like 35%. Otherwise, it's really not on by the time you do all sorts of other stuff. When you do that, there's lots of things which are good. You know, I mean, uh, Brazilian ethanol, sugarcane ethanol, excellent biofuel. Certain other biofuels from things like surplus soy, very good. Uh, there are some which just don't make economic sense because they're alternative uses to the feedstock, and they'll go. And then there's a lot of research. There's a tremendous number, huge amount of money uh, and activity going into uh, what, do, what can we do beyond fermentation of something simple? What can we do beyond fermentation? And can we get uh, some enzymes to go and attack cellulosic material? Or can we do it some other way to make uh, some sort of alcohol, preferably a higher alcohol, uh, from wood or biomass uh, 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 that's readily available? Now, I think many people have just approximated through the difficulties and said it'll be delivered in three years. I'd be stunned if it's delivered that quickly. Uh, certainly, as a continuous chemical engineering process, because it's going to be continuous. But there's some very exciting stuff going on, and I'm sure it will be delivered. Uh, and in the delivery of it, I think we'll find some very exciting breakthroughs in, in you know, the race between organic enzymes and inorganic, these funny inorganic catalysts that I just don't understand at all, uh, that do roughly the same thing. It's very exciting stuff. But I, I think, you know, it'll just finally, just as a business matter, uh, it will take all the growth away from crude oil. So we'll find that the amount of oil that we're using in the world will not reduce because the supply is gone. It's because the demand goes away. I think we have time for one more quick question. Yes. yes. What do you think is the biggest problem that engineers have to solve in the next decade? Oh, I have no doubt that it's the, uh, 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 that all the applications to reduce the amount of energy and carbon dioxide, reduce the amount of energy we're using and the carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere. Uh, 
absolutely convinced that is the number one uh, issue to handle. That's a very straightforward answer. <laughs> I can give you two and three, but I think that's one. I mean, if we don't solve this, then we why, why, why we don't actually have to solve anything else. <laughs> um, I'd like to invite Lord Avery to vote of thanks. First of all, may I congratulate on your behalf Professor Darcy on his election as president of the in, um, chemical engineering uh, institution, um, which I understand was announced yesterday. Uh, warmest congratulations to you, Professor. It's great to have this honor conferred on you in the centenary of the engineering school here. Um, as chairman of the Morris Lovett Trustees, may I warmly congratulate Lord Brown on his excellent address, which was very well worth um, the centenary uh, that we're celebrating. He reminded me a little bit of when I first came into politics a long time ago, and my chief whip said to me, Eric, you're an engineer, so you can go on the pipelines bill at the standing committee. And <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sat upstairs in the standing committee on this bill, which was to allow persons developing pipelines in the United Kingdom to compulsory purchase land. And I'm not joking, we spent the whole of one night arguing about what happened when this pipeline went through land belonging to one or other of the religious denominations. And there was a, there was a member for Edinburgh Central who was determined to obstruct this bill, argued at great length about the differences between uh, the Church of Scotland and the various other denominations, because in one case the priest owned the land, in another case it was the committee of the church, <laughs> and in the third case it was indeterminate. But in every case, you had to sort of say how the uh, developer of the pipeline would be able to go through, through this land. So you talk about Azerbaijan and Georgia. <laughs> Minister, appropriate ministers 
to bring in engineers, for example, on the question of climate change. Perhaps that's something that you and I could lovely ministers on North Run, we can uh, hope to have some uh, success with it because uh, I think everybody will acknowledge that the problem is largely an engineering one, how do we move towards a low-carbon world. Thank you for your distinguished lecture in this 17th year. It was a great pleasure to hear you.